From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Functional neurological disorders refer to neurological symptoms that can't be explained by a particular disease or an injury. These disorders can present as weakness, paralysis, or even blindness, and it can be difficult for doctors to figure out what the problem is. We'll learn more about functional neurological disorders from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll hear about the importance of blood donation and the need for new donors. We'll discuss common foot problems and foot care, and the Mayo Microbiome Program, studying the bacteria in us and on us in the hope of developing better disease treatments. All that, along with this week's Health and Medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the National Institutes of Health, what was once called conversion disorder, but is now more commonly known or maybe better known as functional neurological disorder, that's a condition in which you show psychological stress in physical ways. Your mind affects your body in unusual ways sometimes. Conversion disorder or functional neurological disorder can present as blindness, paralysis, or other nervous system symptoms, symptoms that really can't be explained by a physical illness or an injury. That's frightening. Symptoms may occur because of emotional distress or psychological conflict, and they usually begin suddenly after after a stressful experience or traumatic event. Here to discuss conversion disorder, we need to stop calling it that, it's functional neurological disorder, <laughs> and how it can be treated is Mayo Clinic psychiatrist Dr. Jeffrey Staub. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, why did it have to get changed? Well, there's really a couple of reasons, but the main one is uh, because the idea of it always being related to a psychological dis- uh, stressor, which really dates from the time of Freud and others uh, 100 years ago, isn't something that holds up all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can develop functional changes after a medical event, um, and sometimes for reasons that we can't pin down. Um, so we certainly look for people who have undergone difficulties either in their present life or past life and sometimes find them connected. But other times we find a medical trigger, uh, a fainting spell or, or a medical, other medical illness, and sometimes we really can't sort out what, what triggered it. So there, there's, the, there's the common, there's the unusual, and there's the rare, but then there's the, the really curious, curious and peculiar and maybe confounding and this sounds like it's in that category right it's it's so all of us that practically any doctor in in um practice right now is trained to think that when a patient presents with a symptom whether it be spell of passing out or a movement of the arm or a lack of movement of the arm, um, is that we look for neurological causes. We look to see if there's something wrong with their brains, their muscles, their nerves, and and if we don't find anything, then we presume that it's psychological. Um, The problem is that we can't always find the psychological, and so that's been a sort of a uh, an either-or way of thinking that hasn't always put us and our patients in the best spots. So... As we go through evaluating people who present that way, we certainly look for the psychological things, but sometimes we don't find anything in particular, and neither do the neurologists, and neither does anybody else, but it's still a treatable condition, and that's the best part of this, is even though it's sometimes mysterious, we can do something about it. So you've uh, seen, I'm sure, uh, in in fact, we mentioned at the beginning that these people can have... uh, 
uh, blindness or they can have paralysis or other nervous system disorders or symptoms. So how do you go about evaluating somebody and, and end up putting them in this category of a functional neurological disorder? Well, we have to work as a team, so we can't as psychiatrists do it alone, and we work together with our neurologists and, and sometimes bring in uh, a general internist to help us as well. And so we, the first thing we do is, is listen to the story, listen to how this has developed and how it's changed over time, and sometimes that gives us the clues, the, the triggers or something that the patients and their families might have picked up, um, and if we give them some time to tell us about it, we can see that and, and look and then listen to the patterns. And then we do have to evaluate the the parts of the nervous system that could be affected. Scanning of the brain and an EEG to look for seizures, um, laboratory tests to make sure there's not infections or other things like that. That's a part of the work the evaluation. And then from the psychiatric standpoint, a, a look at person's past history, how they developed, recent things that may be going, going on in their, in their life. We look for all of those clues um, to try and put the picture together. Last thing about this, it's not either or. Um, there are patients who have both a stroke and a functional problem together or uh, epilepsy and functional spells together. And so that's another thing that we were all taught was thinking in either-or ways, and that, uh, that fails a lot of patients who have uh, uh, one thing triggering another and then both exist together. I can't imagine for the patients this has to be incredibly frustrating and frightening. Well, well it is for a couple of reasons. One is that some of these symptoms are very dramatic. I mean, people can have com- completely lose consciousness. People can have what looks for all the world like an epileptic fit. People can have uh, loss of memory that goes on for hours or days. Um, and so they're very frightening symptoms. And, and, um, and, and they, the, the way that they present, uh, all of us think, well, this has to be something wrong with the brain. It can't mm-hmm. possibly be something um, that, that comes from a psychological process or can't be my mind doing this to me. Um, and, and again, we can't always say that that's the case. But, and, and so as a result, a couple of things happen. Patients oftentimes get very extensive neurological evaluations f- for tough things, for strokes, for for ALS, for problems for MS, for my, uh, multiple sclerosis, problems like that, which are very, very frightening to go through an evaluation where somebody thinks that that's maybe going on. And then when they kind of get to the end of the road and their doctors are not left with answers, then they're starting to say, well, you know, this has to be something going on with you. And that's when it's very difficult to shift gears. So um, what do you do? Well, what, what do you do to help these patients? Right. So there's, so there's a couple of things. First of all, if we do happen to find um, something that's gone on in the person's life, um, then we have to address that. Um, you know, I've encountered many patients who have a, a sudden event occur, um, everything from uh, a woman who became paralyzed after an earthquake because she was overwhelmingly frightened that something bad had happened to her family to people who go through stressful times in their life. So we look for those, and if that's present, we can address those. Um, if there, um, if we can't um, find a specific cause there, there are a number of different behavioral strategies that we can use. Um, our physical therapists work closely with us. So if somebody's having paralysis problems or, or movement, abnormal movements or, or walking difficulties, the physical therapist can, can rehabilitate them um, using techniques that they've been taught for over, over many, many years. So uh, tell us about one of the most unusual cases that you've seen with the unusual presentation. Sure. Um, you know, one that I use to teach patients about this 
is uh, is when I was uh, in the Navy, I was stationed in Guam, and we had an earthquake, an 8.2 magnitude earthquake, so pretty big. Um, and it was a woman who was apart from her family at the time. She was visiting in another village, and she was brought to the emergency room about a half an hour after the earthquake, deaf, dumb, blind, mutant, lame. <laughs> no. Um, yes, yes, abs- absolutely nothing. And, and so, of course, we wondered if she'd been injured uh, because sure. she was by herself, uh, and she hadn't been. Medically, neurologically, she was perfectly fine. And um, in that particular case, what had happened was she became, at the time of the earthquake, became so overwhelmingly frightened that her sons, daughters, or grandchildren had been, had been injured that literally her body shut her down. The old sort of see no evil, hear no evil, walk to no evil, experience no evil is what happened with her. And um, when one of her family members came to the hospital to find her and said that, you know, the house is a mess, but everybody's okay, um, we could give her that information and kind of help to coax her back to walking again and then seeing again. And in an hour and a half, she was able to leave the hospital perfectly fine. Um, So that's an example of how intensely overwhelming sudden fear can be. Um, but we've also seen circumstances in which, just as dramatically, people have things like headaches, um, uh, a migraine headache that produces um, some change in vision or some change in movement um, that we know migraines can do, but then goes and, 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 and gets elaborated into a much bigger picture. And there, treating, treating the headaches is the solution. So most of these uh, resolve spontaneously, and what's your role as a psychiatrist in helping the patient get better? Well, some of them resolve spontaneously, so sometimes people have distinct spells, and they go on for a while and then go away. But but um, left untreated, some functional disorders can continue for years and years. Really? So if somebody's getting better, um, and you know we can help them understand what happened and, and continue the process of recovery, we don't have a lot to do. Um, but if they're not getting better, uh, then we do have to sometimes work together, again, with neurology, physical therapy, and, and, and our, our team of therapists to address all the pieces that might be part of the, part of the picture. Well, you have a truly interesting job, don't you? It's fun. How, uh, how often do you see one of these people? people we see, like we see um, about uh, three to four a day. Every my day? Team, my team, yes. With functional neurological right, disorder. Right, so, so movement problems, um, persistent dizziness or vertigo spells, um, uh, fainting or other similar spells. Yeah, our, te- our team has uh, specialized in this, uh, this type of a, of a problem over the last few years. Well, you know, certainly some of things in medicine are difficult to explain and very unusual. And, and some of the people that you see, some of the most unusual things we've heard about on this program. Dr. Jeffrey Staub, psychiatrist at the Mayo Clinic, talking about functional neurological disorders. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, it's been a pleasure. You're quite welcome. Glad it could be here. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the importance of blood donation. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, this past July, Tracy, the American Red Cross issued an emergency call for blood and platelet donations. And, of course, there's the problem of the Zika virus, which has affected donations as well. And I I just read where the FDA has now recommended that all blood donations in the United States be tested for the Zika virus. A new problem. In addition, the typical blood donor is usually of older average age. So there's a real need to cultivate 
new blood donors from younger generations. Yeah, no, they should. The millennials should know that they can actually use their smartphone while they're giving a unit of blood. <laughs> Very so, good. But can you hunt Pokemon? That's important. <laughs> Here to discuss the importance of blood donation is medical director of the Blood Donor Center at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Dr. Justin Kreuter. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kreuter. It's good to see you again. Thanks for having me. So how big of an impact has the Zika virus had? It certainly uses a lot of bandwidth that we have for uh, collecting blood. Uh, there's a lot of regulations that we have to pay attention to. We certainly want to have, and uh, we live out our culture of having a uh, safest possible blood supply in this country. So are you now testing for Zika virus in, in the blood that you get? Right now, we don't have access to that test, but in the coming uh, weeks, we will be testing. So within the next 12 weeks here in Minnesota, we'll be testing all units uh, that we are collecting. Are patients concerned about the Zika virus? Certainly, patients ask about it, and right now, we are protecting our blood supply by asking all of our donors about travel history and deferring donors that are taking those summer vacations down south of the border into Zika risk areas. So is it true you oftentimes come up a little short in the summer as opposed to the winter? Absolutely. In the summertime when our donors are are, uh, out and about uh, taking trips, uh, when they're traveling, they're obviously not available to come in and donate blood. And then sometimes those travel plans also uh, get in the way of being eligible as a donor. And what makes someone eligible or ineligible? Well, it's all about safety for the patient. So that's why we ask about where somebody is traveling to. For example, we don't have a test for malaria. So we want to know if somebody is traveling to a malaria risk area. And if they do, we defer them for a period of time to make sure that uh, their blood is safe when transfused to a patient. The same thing with Zika right now. We're protecting uh, patients by asking where our donors are traveling to. And that will change uh, once we start testing our blood. All right, and tell us about uh, some of the other criteria that you use for who can and can't be a blood donor, because Tracy mentioned before the program that she couldn't be a blood donor. I'm a lymphoma, yeah. lymphoma survivor. <laughs> Hooray, but I want to give blood too. Sure, well, it's interesting. So for some things, it's, it's regulated by the FDA. So certain medications that a donor may be taking may make them ineligible for donating blood, or it may just be them ineligible for donating a certain component of blood for a period of time. For example, if somebody is taking aspirin, we ask that they not donate platelets for three days after taking that aspirin. Because aspirin interferes with platelet function? Correct. And so if somebody is donating a dose of platelets that's going to be used for a patient, we want to make sure that not only that the blood product that we're transfusing to patients are safe, but they're also going to be clinically effective. And and who, who else is not eligible? Who else do you who comes in and says, I want to donate a unit? Do you say, well, you can't because? Well, in some cases, uh, it's interesting. Cancer uh, uh, history in donors is variable across our country. So here at Mayo Clinic, people that have uh, blood cancers such as lymphomas, leukemias are permanently deferred. However, we have different policies for other cancers. And so really, I guess for the listeners is to check with your local blood center to see what their policies are uh, for your particular situation. You are permanently deferred. I know. I'm on the list. <laughs> but you know what? You're alive. <laughs> I am. I am. You know, we were talking about um, encouraging younger people to become a blood donor. Uh, how old do you have to be to donate blood? Uh, so it, it depends on, on your area. So here in Minnesota, people that are 16 can donate blood with parents' permission. But everywhere across the country, 17 and over are eligible to donate blood. 
Um, do you pay donors? We don't. Uh, so that's that's really? something that is very closely monitored because it's again another layer of safety mm-hmm. uh, that we want to make sure that somebody coming in and uh, donating the time and their blood uh, is not incentivized in any way. So that we're making sure that their answers to these questions that we're asking, some of them very personal, very private questions, uh, that we're getting honest responses. And that's again one of these layers of safety for the blood supply. And what are the other things that people can donate besides blood? Aren't there like, I don't know, there's people who do just the quick donation and then they're there for in the chair for three or four hours. What's going on? So uh, most commonly people are donating whole blood uh, when they come in and donate, which takes uh, the actual donation itself takes maybe about 10 minutes. But sometimes people come and donate uh, platelets, and that does tend to take about an hour or two uh, of actual collection time to do that donation. So these are these different components of our blood. So there's red cells that somebody can donate specifically. Uh, somebody can donate specifically the platelet component of what's circulating in their bloodstream. Well, why wouldn't you just plasma? give them the whole thing and let you kind of divide it up the way you need to? That's an excellent question. So, um, it has to go with what our patients uh, need uh, oh, this okay. day and age. So, for example, if you were to donate a whole blood unit, uh, there's a small amount of platelets distributed amongst that, that unit. And actually what we transfuse to a patient is usually five or six times what's just there in that whole blood unit. So in years past, we used to collect those platelets and pool them together in pools of five or six to transfuse to a patient, whereas now most people across the country are collecting platelets specifically from one donor uh, to Hmm. a patient as a platelet unit. So it's a way to get a higher amount of uh, product for a patient. What's the shelf life here when you get blood from a donor? Um, how long can it hang around? So it actually depends on the uh, blood component or, uh, in fact, also on how we collect that blood, what kind of preservative that we use. Uh, in this country, we're really hand-to-mouth with regard to platelets. That has mm-hmm. a five-day shelf life. Mm-hmm. Um, and those first two days are taken up with doing infectious disease testing. So we really only have about three days uh, to use that product. And as you were talking, uh, that there's still patients that come into our emergency rooms with traumas, and there's a lot of variable use for this product that we're very hand-to-mouth on. So we're very dependent on our do- on our blood donors. So platelets is only five days. Red blood cells, whole blood, is typically around 42 days. And plasma units we can keep uh, frozen for about a year. So it's a volunteer program, and we certainly want people out there to, to volunteer and give blood. So a couple of questions. Um, does it hurt? And uh, how long do they need to plan on spending in your lab? So it, as far as hurt, it's just like getting a blood draw. So it's, it's a, a needle in the arm, uh, and we certainly uh, have professionals who are doing this all day to try to minimize uh, that pain. As one of our uh, donors uh, eloquently said, uh, the amount of pain that it takes from getting that little needle stick is nothing compared to what's going, what's going on in our patients. Well, it's great to have you with us. Dr. Justin Kreiter is medical director of the Blood Donor Center at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Thank you, Tom. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. An abundance of produce is what you'll find at farmer's markets during harvest time. Lots of great tomatoes, peppers, the variety. 
gives you variety or something, you know, a little bit more entertaining to the palate, um, but also it gives you different nutrients. Mayo Clinic wellness chef Jen Welper says a big benefit of buying from local growers is freshness. They are picked, they are put on a truck, they're driven to the farmer's market, they're sold. You just want to be able to have a connection with your food and be able to see it and be able to inspect it and make sure it's what you want to put in your body. There's not a big difference in nutritional value between the fruits and veggies you buy in the produce aisle and stores versus farmer's markets, but... It's always good to know that the vegetables haven't traveled very far to get to your hands, to get to your kitchen. It's always nice to know the people who put the time and effort into growing foods for your table. And by buying local, you are supporting your local economy. And in other news, ACL injuries of the knee are no fun, but if you do tear your ACL, surgery isn't always necessary. Physical rehabilitation can strengthen the muscles around the joint and in some cases allow a return to physical activity. But that's usually true only if your activity does not involve aggressive cut and pivot movements or jumping and high impact. Now, ligaments are strong bands of tissue that connect one bone to another. Your ACL is one of two ligaments that cross in the middle of the knee and connect your thigh bone or femur to your shin bone or tibia. The ACL helps to keep your knee joint stable. When the ACL is torn, it usually causes knee pain and swelling. After an ACL injury, you also may feel instability in that knee or feel that the knee is giving way when you turn quickly or pivot. You might even hear a pop. They often happen as a result of suddenly stopping, changing directions, or pivoting. Sports that put you at risk include basketball, singles tennis, football, volleyball, downhill skiing, and soccer. Rehab often involves working with a physical therapist to learn exercises that strengthen your leg muscles, as well as the muscles in your hips, pelvis, and lower abdomen. Increasing muscle strength helps stabilize your knee joint, making it less susceptible to further injury. If you might have an ACL tear, talk to your health care provider to find out the treatment that's right for you. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shire. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, you know, no part of the body gets more wear and tear than your feet. What is it, 10,000 steps every day, and you multiply that out over a lifetime? Wow, it's amazing how far people walk during a lifetime. And, of course, your feet can sometimes be a problem. you got athlete's foot and ingrown toenails, corns mm-hmm. and calluses. There are a whole lot of fairly common foot problems. While foot problems can be minor and very treatable, people with Diabetes need to be especially careful with foot care as nerve damage and narrowed arteries in your legs make foot injuries or infections more likely. How true that is. And it's interesting how often we see someone show up at the hospital with a bad wound sore on their foot. Uh, because of diabetes, and they never even knew they had diabetes. Wow. But once you know, it's really important to, to take care of your feet. So, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine, family physician, how often do you see people complain of, of foot problems? Is it a fairly a common complaint in your practice? It is, probably at least once a day. Once yeah. a day? You're working with people's feet? <laughs> I find myself on the floor more than you'd guess. <laughs> she takes care of every part of the body. And, one of the, and the common, most common foot problems? Most common foot problems, probably things like funguses, like athlete's foot or um, fungal, fungal infections of the nails, uh, which 
you know, really doesn't cause that much of a problem, but people are bothered by it. Uh, and then the diabetic foot infections, like you mentioned, Dr. Shives. So what's your favorite treatment for athlete's foot these days? I just recommend an over-the-counter cream like terbinafine or clotrimazole. And that's something that people don't figure out on their own, or is this that they've been dealing with athletes for, for so long they finally decide to come in and talk to their doctor about it? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, sometimes people have tried over-the-counter treatments and have not had success, and I can offer some pointers about how to more effectively use those uh, methods. Other times, people just don't have any idea what to do. And now I saw on TV that there's now treatment for a chronic fungal infection of the of the nails. Tell us about that treatment. Does it really work, and do you prescribe it? Well, I think that the evidence is not great for oral or topical treatments of fungal infections of the nail. The first thing that I typically recommend is doing nothing. Mm-hmm. The challenge with uh, treating fungal infections is often they occur in older adults in whom the nail growth is slower to start with. And so they're more prone to infections because their nails are growing slower than somebody younger. Mm. Um, So that means it's harder for the Mm. nail to be treated because if it grows slower, it's going to grow out more slowly. So usually if somebody's not having a lot of problems, I usually say, how much are you really bothered by, the, bothered by this? Do you want to take a medicine to try and fix it? Or are you comfortable just managing it cosmetically? But if they're really gung-ho about it, then I talk to them about the risks and benefits of any medication and then try to see if we can find something that might be covered by their insurance. And you said that, uh, first of all, that it wasn't all that effective. And isn't it long-term treatment? I mean, don't you have to take this antibiotic for yeah. a decade or something? <laughs> Just about. It might feel like it. <laughs> uh, the typical course of oral terbinafine, which is Lamisil, is 12 weeks. Well, wow. Okay. And you said it wasn't all that successful. You, you haven't had that many people where it actually cured the fungal infection. You know, I really haven't. And I've heard dermatologists say about the same thing. You know, they spend a lot more time with nails even than I do and typically also offer the same options. Do nothing, try an oral or try a topical. All right. Since we're talking about toenails, as a medical professional and as a fellow mother, please speak to my children who will not listen to me about cutting their toenails. How should you cut your toenails? And why are you in trouble with your mom if you tear them off? Well, (laughs) tear them off. Tear them off. They're terrible. Kids do odd things. And actually, I did make my husband promise that if anything ever happens to me, he'll cut our kids' nails. But... Anyways, cutting the nails kind of more straight across so you don't have a sharp edge that's going to dig into the nail, the lateral or medial edge of the nail, the side of the nail, uh, is helpful to avoid something sharp poking in there to cause inflammation and irritation. That's what gives you the ingrown toenail? It can, yes. All right, talk about um, bunions. Explain a little bit about what bunions do and why they're so terrible. Sure. Bunion is a deformity called valgus deformity of the bone in the foot, and so it looks like your toes are pointing out when they're supposed to be pointing straight ahead. Is that an age-related thing as well? It seems to be sometimes age-related, sometimes just your anatomy, maybe the anatomy of the family you came from. And there Bunions don't have to be treated if you're not having a problem with them. Usually I say get accommodating footwear, so something wide. I wouldn't recommend pointy-toed, stiletto, high heels to most people. And um, dressing for comfort rather than jamming your foot into something. Now, our foot surgeons in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery uh, always say, or uh, the majority of them say, that a lot of the bunions are caused by uh, high heels, narrow-toed shoes. And that if you don't wear narrow-toed shoes, if you wear shoes that fit, you're unlikely to get bunions. But, of course, there is a familial tendency there. That's for sure. So men don't get bunions? 
Not I see more in women. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All yeah. right. I think yeah. men are less tempted to make silly shoe choices. Very good. They're yeah. wiser about those types of things. Speaking generally. And really, there's no, uh, as I suspect you would you would say, there is no cure for that problem other than surgery. But uh, the surgery is now pretty successful. At least the guys in our department, the foot surgeons, do a great job of straightening out those toes. What is plantar fasciitis? Plantar fasciitis is an irritation of the fascia, which is kind of the covering of the muscle on the bottom of the foot, which is how I explain it to patients. And it becomes inflamed and irritated, and it can hurt quite a bit. It often hurts right away in the morning because the plantar fascia kind of relaxes as you're sleeping, and then as you stretch it out with that first step, it can be very painful. So if you take your palm mm-hmm. and you take your thumb and push it in your opposite palm, that's right. kind of that's kind of like a fascia. That's that what it is. is. A fascia. Only you have the similar thing down in your uh, foot. Who's at risk though for plantar fasciitis? Everybody. All of us. <laughs> I've had it. <laughs> Great foot care uh, just boils down to proper fitting shoes. Is that what you said? I think that's a good place to start. You know, certainly it's a little bit different if we're talking about somebody with a chronic illness like diabetes, but for the average person. Paying attention to what's going on with your nails and your feet, wearing comfortable shoes, and keeping your weight in check. And we've got to take a 30 seconds to tell us why it's so important for diabetics to take good care of their feet. Many diabetics have peripheral neuropathy, so that means they have decreased sensation in their feet. If they get an injury, they may not be aware of it, just like you mentioned, Dr. Shives. So actually physically looking at the foot to see if there's anything abnormal is very, very important. So that you don't get an infection that gets away from us. We've been talking about foot care with family medicine specialist, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Cozine. Thanks for having me. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the Mayo Microbiome Program. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, the invention of the microscope, though so many years ago, helped doctors to understand how bacteria can cause and transmit infections in humans. Now, using genomic sequencing, researchers are discovering that communities of bacteria known as the human microbiome do much more for us than we ever imagined. And the Mayo Clinic Microbiome Program, which is part of the Center for Individualized Medicine, actually researches the relationship between the microbiome and health and disease. Here to discuss the human microbiome is the chairman of the Department of General Surgery at Mayo Clinic Rochester and the director of the Human Microbiome Program, Dr. Heidi Nelson. Good to have you, Dr. Nelson. Thanks for being with us. Yep. Thank you so much. So when someone come up, comes up to you and says, you know, what's your, what are you doing? What are you researching? When, and you say, well, the human microbiome, and they say, well, what's that? Duh, what do you tell them? What? <laughs> what is that? Well, in, in many ways, I consider it to be a bit of a missing link in our understanding about our own health. We think about our own genome and the contributions of our own genome towards our who we are and our health, but we really have ignored, uh, because we haven't been able to study, the genome of the bacteria that populate us. So we are trillions of bacteria. We have bacteria uh, in our airways, in our intestines, on our skin, uh, throughout our body, in essence. And while we used to think of them as being strictly infection 
problems, pathogens, if you will, that caused uh, illness in people, we now recognize that they're uh, abundant amongst us and they are part of our health. They actually help us uh, get vitamins out of our food. They help us with cofactors. They are very important for our immune system. They help us sort of set up our immune system. So we're learning a lot about their contribution, not just as illness, but as just a part of our normal health. And there is such a thing as a healthy microbiome as opposed to a less healthy microbiome. And that's uh, part of what we're trying to study. So a microbiome is basically a population of bacteria. And in this case, the bacteria that are that are good. They're, they're the good guys. And they help us do things and they, they don't cause disease. A healthy population is the key there. It's like any ecosystem. If you have the right healthy population of bacteria that are in harmony with each other and uh, do the functions that we need them to do for us, then the harmful bacteria are not as likely to get into that space and to cause problems. There are chronic conditions where there's probably an imbalance. We often see in our studies that low diversity of bacteria then allows sort of a expansion of the rare bacteria that can cause problems, creating metabolites that we aren't normally uh, used to having in our systems, for example. Um, The C. difficile problem that many people uh, might be familiar with when you take antibiotics, you can get the Clostridium difficile infection, the colitis, and that probably happens because you take the antibiotics, you, you knock off some of the healthy bacteria, and then sort of the the less healthy bacteria, which are there in small numbers, become there in larger numbers. It's kind of like having weeds out of control uh, in your system, in your yard system. So if you have too many of them, it can be uh, a problem. Then they create uh, complications by toxin release or other uh, just invasion. So how do you go about studying the human microbiome? Well, where do you start? What do you do? And what are you trying to find out? Well, that's a great question. We take samples from a variety of places, depending on what you're studying. I happen to be interested in the intestines for the most part. And so we can take samples, and then we can prepare those samples by extracting the DNA uh, from the bacteria. And you can fingerprint bacteria. They they all have a certain uh, identity through genome sequencing. Um, But you can also then take it a level below who's there through just 16S sequencing to what genes do they have and what are those genes going to do? Are they going to create a toxin? Are they going to create a metabolite? And sometimes it's simply the creation of a metabolite that causes a symptom or a problem, either in the intestine or it can be a metabolite that gets in the circulation and causes a problem that can be manifested elsewhere besides the intestine. The antibiotics that we take are one of the things that kind of damages that microbiome. What else damages the microbiome? We're just, just antibiotics only? Uh, no, I, we don't know exactly mm. what all damages a microbiome. Um, we think that what you eat has a lot to do with whether you're continuing to populate a healthy microbiome. Um, it all comes down to biochemical interactions. Uh, but, you know, probably things like, you know, uh, chemotherapy, maybe radiation therapy, any number of different factors uh, probably you know, shifts the normal population of bacteria, Mm -hmm. anything that is exposed to them. Uh, But we don't know factually all the answers to that question yet. 
we have some ideas. Can you give us an example of, of <clears throat> a research that has led to a better care for a particular problem? Well, we're a very young field. You know, sure. the earth sciences have been looking at microbiome for a long time, but in health, it's only been really in the last five to ten years that we've even understood that they exist. Um, we're getting a lot more insight into many problems um, uh, to be able to predict when somebody's microbiome population is too far out of range, like in Clostridium difficile. A fecal transplant is used to restore that community of bacteria um, that's highly successful. So that's one example, I guess, of a, something that's in the clinic right now. But that's a good example of what might be coming down the road. What yeah. uh, You mentioned C. difficile. What are some other um, ailments that people can experience if their microbiome isn't healthy? Well, we do know that the microbiome contributes, for example, to rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it's going to be a longer story to figure out how to solve that. But, um, the, again, people with rheumatoid arthritis, Arthritis have a lower uh, community structure, we say low, lower diversity, and then they have certain bacteria that are more prominent than they normally would be, and then they create a metabolite, or there's a metabolite that part of the immune complex is that causes the joint problems. So how do you reverse that is a key question, and that will take some years to sort through the strategies to reestablish normal. So you now have the ability, let's say someone had, had taken antibiotics and they got C. difficile and you identified that in their stool. You now have the ability to go in and test that person's microbiome and find out that it's abnormal, give them a fecal transplant, and then uh, figure out, uh, take another sample and find out that the human microbiome has been, the normal microbiome has been restored? Well... Clinically, we use the presence of C. difficile and the presence of colitis symptoms, refractory diarrhea, and they can't get rid of the, the high abundance of Clostridium difficile. That's the marker for treating them with a fecal transplant. They're symptomatic. You can't fix it uh, with um, any other traditional approaches. But we are studying what happens to the microbiome, and mm. we do see it's like any other transplant you see engraftment that occurs um, to that indicates that you've really restored the normal situation. That's what I just was going to ask too. Is there any research being done on how to repair someone's microbiome? That's the secret uh, uh, initiative. I mean, that's what we really have to get to. And for that, we'll probably have to turn to ecology principles to say, if you have this disruption how do you return to normal? Because it's going to be some kind of interaction between microbial genome and human genome and immune system that we'll have to sort through. There's a host contribution, microbe contribution, probably diet contributions that we have to solve. Some will be simple if it's simply just restoring diet, um, but some may be more complex. We'd love to have you back when you get it figured out. Exciting <laughs> stuff. Dr. Heidi Nelson, Chairman of the Department of General Surgery and Director of the Human Microbiome Program, Mayo Clinic. Dr. Nelson, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. 
Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We will be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.